You're listening to a sermon preached at Redeeming Life Church. I'd like to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew 25. Matthew 25, we're going to be starting in the 14th verse. Today we are going to be looking at the parable of the talents. This month we are going through some of the potent parables that Jesus shared while he was here on earth. And today we are going to be looking at the parable of the talents. Matthew 25, starting on the 14th verse. If you're using one of those Red Pew Bibles, we're going to be on page 880. And as always, you can find all the verses and so much more in the YouVersion Bible app as well. I hear some pages turning, so I'm going to give you just a few more seconds. Jesus is talking to his disciples. He's talking about the kingdom of heaven. And he says in verse 14, 4, it is just like a man about to go on a journey. He called his own servants and entrusted his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two talents, and to another one talent, depending on each one's ability. Then he went on a journey. Immediately, the man who had received five talents went, put them to work, and earned five more. In the same way, the man with two earned two more. The man who had received one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five talents approached, presented five more talents, and said, Master, you gave me five talents. See, I've earned five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Share in your master's joy. The man with two talents also approached. He said, Master, you gave me two talents. See, I've earned two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Share your master's joy. The man who had received one talent also approached and said, Master, I know you. You're a harsh man, reaping where you haven't sown and gathered where you haven't scattered seed. So I was afraid, and I went off and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. His master replied to him, You evil, lazy servant. If you knew that I reap where I haven't sown and gather where I haven't scattered seed, then you should have deposited my money with the bankers, and I would have received my money back with interest when I returned. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents, for to everyone who has more will be given, and he will have more than enough. But from the one who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him, and throw this good-for-nothing servant into outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray before we begin our time together. Lord, I thank you so much for your word. I pray that you would speak to us today through your word, Lord. Use me. Help me to handle the text rightly this morning. Show us what you would have us learn from your word. What we don't know, teach us. What we can't see, show us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Our parable this morning is most likely a very familiar one. This parable, while it can be read as a standalone parable, is actually part of a three-part story that Jesus shares with his disciples shortly before his crucifixion. The parable of the talents is actually sandwiched between two other parables here in Matthew 25. 
The parable of the ten virgins at the beginning of chapter 25. And then the parable of the, sheeps, the sheep and the goats, beginning in verse 31. All three parables are used by Jesus to convey to his disciples that after his death, burial, and resurrection, Christ is going to heaven, only to return one day, and that when he does, his disciples need to be ready. To give you a little background information, our story actually probably starts more around Matthew 24, before the parable of the talents, as Jesus and his disciples are making their way out of the temple. His disciples are marveling at how beautiful the buildings are, and Jesus responds to him by telling them that the temple will one day be destroyed. Jesus says to them in verse 2, Do you see all these things? Truly I tell you, not one stone will be left on here on another that will not be thrown down. This statement, of course, prompts questions from Jesus' disciples about the end of the world and, and the timing of when all these events will take place. Jesus explains that no one knows the time or the hour when Christ will return. Not even the angels or the Son of Man, but only God the Father knows. Jesus shares some signs that the disciples can look for and expect prior to his coming, and then closes with a powerful warning about his imminent return. Look back before our text this morning at Matthew 24, starting in the 45th verse. Jesus says to his disciples, Who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his master has put in charge of the household to give them food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom the master finds doing his job when he comes. Truly I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says in his heart, My master is delayed and starts to beat his fellow servants, and eats and drinks with drunkards, that servant's master will come on a day he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It is out of this stark warning and encouragement to be ready for Christ's return that Jesus then shares three different parables with a common theme and message. First is the parable of the ten virgins. In this parable, we read about ten women, five who were faithful and wise, and five who were foolish. The wise virgins had enough oil in their lamps that when their bridegroom arrived back from his journey, he was able to usher them into the wedding banquet with him. The foolish ones, however, ran out of oil and had to rush into town at the last minute to buy more. Upon returning back, they were told by their master to go away because he did not know them. Then we have the parable of the talents, which we just read, followed by a parable about the sheep and the goats. In this parable, Jesus describes how when the Son of Man returns in all of his glory, he will separate the sheep from the goats, the sheep representing the righteous and the goats representing the unrighteous. In this parable, Jesus says he will put the sheep on his right and say to them, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you. And then he will put the goats on his left and say, Depart from me, you who are cursed into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Verse 46 states that they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous will go into eternal life. Just like our parable from last week, all three of these parables in Matthew 25 are meant to explain what the kingdom of heaven is like. They are designed to help Jesus' disciples and in turn us know what we can expect when Christ returns. I hope that you can see that this morning. 
I hope that this quick summary gives you a solid understanding and context of what we are looking at today. But before we dive too deep into this parable, let's break down the nuts and bolts of things and really look at our primary text this morning. This parable, the parable of the towns, is a story that many of us are probably familiar with. I wouldn't be surprised if many of us have read this parable at least once, if not multiple times before. And at first glance, it would appear pretty straightforward. As the master is preparing to go on his long journey, he decides to leave his servants in charge of various things based on their abilities. The master approaches the first servant and gives him five talents. He gives the second servant two talents and the third servant one talent, which begs the question, what is a talent? What was a talent? Well, if you were with us last week or you watched online, then you probably remember what a talent was. But for those who weren't with us or maybe don't remember, a talent was worth about 6,000 denarii, or about 20 years' wages for a common laborer. So the master leaves these three men in charge of various amounts of money based on their different abilities and then departs on his journey. Let's look at what happens next. Immediately, verse 16 tells us, the man who had received five talents went, put them to work, and earned five more. In the same way, the man with two earned two more. But the man who had received one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. All right. I think I understand what the first two servants were doing. I understand why they put their master's money to work and they invested it in the Judean stock exchange. But right off the bat, I really don't understand what this third guy is doing. It seems a little weird that he would go dig a hole in the ground and bury his master's money. I mean, the first two guys have doubled what was given to them. And this third guy is just sitting on his talent. However, based on the time period, this was actually a pretty common practice. Here's what you need to know. Whenever we read scripture, the first thing we have to do is it's important to stop and consider the original audience, the time and the place when this was written. If we immediately jump to today's context and how we can apply this text to our lives, then we rob ourselves of the glory containing God's word and the rich history within the scripture. Last week I mentioned that according to rabbinic law, it was customary to forgive someone about one to three times. Well, here in today's passage, we find that it was actually common practice, according to rabbinic law, to bury property in the ground because it was considered the safest possible course of action. Therefore, it would absolve the servant from any liability for having maybe lost the money had he decided to invest it. It's kind of like hiding your money under the mattress or stuffing it away in a coffee tin on top of the refrigerator. It's out of sight, it's out of mind, and hopefully nothing's going to happen to it. You might consider this a wise choice, but I want to look at how the master responds. Do you remember how the master responded when he got back? Let's find out what he says. Let's look at verse 19. After a long time, it says, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five talents approached, presented five more talents, and said, Master, you gave me five talents. See, I've earned five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Share your master's joy. The man with two talents also approached. He said, Master, you gave me two talents. See, I've earned two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Share your master's joy. 
But then the man who had received one talent also approached. And he said, Master, I know you. You're a harsh man, reaping where you haven't sown and gathering where you haven't scattered seed. So I was afraid, and I went up and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. His master replied to him, You evil, lazy servant. If you knew that I reap where I haven't sown and gather where I haven't scattered, then you should have deposited my money with the bankers. I would have received my money back with interest when I returned. So there you have it. According to the master, the first two servants crushed it. I mean, they nailed it. Not only were they faithful with the talents their master had entrusted them with, but they were actually able to double his money. Our third guy, on the other hand, not so much. It doesn't sound like the master is very pleased with him at all. The first servant was able to double the master's money by investing it wisely, as did the second servant. Both were faithful with what they had been entrusted with. However, this third servant was anything but faithful. According to our text, his master called him an evil and a lazy servant. Not only that, but it's about to get even worse. Look at what the master says next. Look at verse 28. So then the master says, Take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given. And he will have more than enough. But from the one who does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. And verse 30 says, Throw this good-for-nothing servant into the outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. As I mentioned last week, the parables that we are reading are allegories. They don't necessarily portray actual events that took place. However, Jesus is using these parables to convey powerful biblical truths and impart spiritual wisdom and understanding about future events that will occur to his disciples and to us. That being said, I would argue that the point that Jesus is trying to convey through this parable is the importance of being faithful with the talents that you have been given. Just as the servants were expected to be faithful with what their master had given them, we too as Christians have been called upon to be faithful with what the Lord has given us. As Christians, awaiting the return of Christ, we have been entrusted with the responsibility of faithfully utilizing the gifts that we have been given until his glorious return. The servants in our parable this morning were each entrusted with different talents based on their abilities. If you remember, the first servant had five, the second servant was given two, and the third servant was given one. The last servant was judged by his master, not because he didn't double his investment, his talent by investing it, like the first two servants, but rather he was judged for failing to use what he had been given. He was judged for hiding his valuable talent in the ground and squandering it. Here's my question this morning. How many of us today are guilty of the very same thing? How many of us are squandering the talents that God has given to us? I heard somebody play the piano this week that I had no idea could play the piano, and it was amazing. I know somebody else here who's dying to play the cowbell. Some of you guys are holding out on us. <laughs> While you think about what your hidden talent is and reflect on the gifts that God has given you, I think it's important to consider why the first two servants honored the master with their faithfulness. It's important to ask ourselves why we would want to honor our creator with our faithfulness. 
the prosperity preacher would look at this text and tell you, see, if you're faithful with a little, God is guaranteed to give you more. After all, the master took the one town away from the wicked servant and gave it to the first servant who had five talents. That preacher will tell you that all you got to do is sow a seed and God will be faithful to bless you in return. Now, while that might make for a great soundbite on television or a tweetable quote on social media, at the end of the day, the name it and claim it guy has got it all wrong. Just this week, I heard a prosperity preacher tell me to declare today that God will reward me for my faithfulness. If God chooses to reward me for my faithfulness, that's his decision. But is that the only reason I have to be faithful? Should that really be my main reason for honoring God? To get rewarded? To get something in return? Was that the servant's reason for being faithful? So that they too could be rewarded? I don't believe it was. If that was the case, what about the second servant? The second servant was just as faithful as the first servant was. He didn't get an extra talent. So what about that guy? If God is guaranteed to reward our faithfulness with monetary and worldly wealth, then why didn't the second servant get the same bonus that the first one did? Jesus does not tell us in our text today what the motivation was behind their faithfulness. But I believe after reading this entire parable, I would contend that the reason the first two servants were faithful with what they had been given was because of a love for their master and a desire to please and honor him. These guys weren't looking to get rewarded. In fact, their reward had nothing to do with financial gain or wealth. The talents that they had been entrusted with weren't even their own. They belonged to the master. In my previous vocation, I was entrusted with managing a grocery store. It wasn't my grocery store. I was just in charge of managing it. And as I was, I was responsible and in charge of about 50 different employees. Now, having supervised that many people, I can tell you that if you are faithful with a little, you will be given more. That's not a prosperity promise. That's just common sense. As the manager of the store, if I had an employee who could follow directions and do what they were told, I would continually give them more opportunities to do more. If I could trust them to do what I was asked while I was gone, I would trust them with more. On the flip side, if I had an employee I couldn't trust to follow through with instructions, I didn't ask them to do a whole lot. If I gave somebody a task before going home at the end of the day, and I knew the next morning I was going to have to come in and either redo or finish that task, they weren't getting that many more assignments from me. Now, if you were to go and talk to my old employees, the ones who followed directions, they would probably tell you that they worked hard and were faithful because they respected me. Or maybe they cared about me, or maybe they valued having me as a boss. What they're probably not going to tell you is that they followed directions to get a raise. Because I didn't give out raises that often. What I did give them was my encouragement and my thanks. I invited them to share in my joy with me. If you're choosing to serve God and do good works simply to get rewarded or to earn your salvation, you might as well go dig a hole in the ground and bury your good works there. The Bible says that the Lord loves a cheerful giver. That has a lot more to do with your heart than with your checkbook. God is looking for those who are faithfully giving up their time, their talents, their treasure, not out of a sense of duty or obligation, but out of an overwhelming spirit of joy 
and love for the Father. The first two servants had an overwhelming sense of joy and love for their master. The third servant despised and even hated his master. It doesn't take a literary genius to see that. It's clear from our text today. As a result, the outcome for the first two servants versus the last servant was vastly different. While the first two servants were invited to share in their master's joy, the last servant is thrown into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Growing up, my father always told me, you could choose your actions, but you cannot choose your consequences. That was true. And the consequences these two men faced were very real. The consequences that we're going to face based on our actions are quite real as well. I have a dear friend who repeatedly tries to convince me that all roads lead to heaven. I'm sure you've heard that before. It's a common phrase, all roads lead to heaven. I even had somebody call me a Satanist before because I said that Jesus is the only way to heaven. But what these people don't understand is there is a giant chasm between heaven and hell. All roads can't lead to heaven because there are no roads to heaven. There's a giant abyss between us and heaven. The only way to heaven is through Jesus Christ. I've heard it stated before that there is a gulf between heaven and hell, happiness and suffering, misery and the joy of the redeemed. And that is exactly what we see in these three different parables here in Matthew. In the parable of the talents, the faithful servants are invited to share in their master's happiness, while the wicked are cast outside into outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In the next parable, the goats go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Many people in this world, Christians and non-Christians, think that once they die, they will immediately be ushered into heaven. However, from our text this morning, we see that's not the case. After we die, we all will be ushered somewhere. The question is, where? Will you be found faithful, like our servants today, and be told, well done, good and faithful servant, come share your master's joy? Or will you hear the words, throw this good-for-nothing servant into the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth? If you only hear one thing I say this morning, hear this, please. Heaven and hell are real. They are real physical places. This life isn't make-believe. Heaven and hell are real, and despite what you've seen in the cartoons, hell is not a place where the devil torments sinners. Hell is a place where the devil is tormented alongside sinners. In the very next parable, when Jesus is separating the sheep from the goats, he states, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Think about that. Can you imagine spending eternity right alongside the one person whose goal it has been to separate people from God and rob them of the glory of spending eternity with him? From the very beginning in the Garden of Eden, it has been Satan's aim to defy God and cause others to share in his suffering forever. Hell is a place of unimaginable agony. Look at the phrases that Jesus uses to describe hell in this portion of Matthew. This is the fate for the unbeliever. Cut into pieces. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. Outer darkness and eternal fire. That is the reality that awaits those who turn their back on Christ and reject him. 
Heaven and hell are real. And in the very next parable, Jesus outlines the reality of what is to come. I've just shared with you the need for the gospel. I've shared with you the importance of the gospel. However, if you were to continue reading in Matthew, you would see that in the next few chapters, Christ is going to live out the gospel. Jesus is about to be betrayed by Judas. He's going to be handed over to Pilate. He's going to be denied by Peter. And he's going to be crucified on a cross. Not for anything that he has done, but for everything that we have done. Throughout all of history, every man, woman, and child has sinned against God. Except one. Everyone has sinned against God except the one who was sent to redeem us of our sins and rescue us from an eternity spent in outer darkness. What a terrible fate that would be. Eternity in outer darkness. Darkness, because it is a life without God who is the source of all light. And outside, because it is a place where God, without him, who is the center and creator of all things. In this place, there is no hope. There is no joy. There is no love. There is no laughter. Instead, there is only weeping and gnashing of teeth where people are tortured forever. Who would want to live there? I can't imagine wanting to spend eternity in a place like that. Unfortunately, if you are sitting here today or you're listening online and you are not a Christian, that is exactly what your future looks like. That is the consequence of a life lived for sin, lived out for the things of this world. If you are not a Christian, now is the time to repent of your sin and believe in Jesus. Trust Christ as your Savior and spend the rest of your life living faithfully for him. If that's you this morning, what is preventing you from following Christ? If that's you today, let's have a conversation about what it means to follow Christ and enjoy him forever. My charge to the unbeliever this morning is to repent and believe. My encouragement for the believer today is to trust and obey. Christ is coming back one day. The question is, will we be ready? Because as Christians awaiting the return of Christ, we have been instructed with the responsibility of faithfully using all the gifts and talents that we have been given until his glorious return. I learned a fancy word during my sermon preparation this week. It's the word paraugia. If you're taking notes, it's spelled P-A-R-O-U-S-I-A. Paraugia. It's the term that Bible scholars and theologians use to describe the second coming of Christ. We just celebrated the first coming of Christ, Advent, during Christmas, and Perugia is his second coming that we are looking forward to. As Christians, as servants of Christ awaiting his Perugia, we have been entrusted with the responsibility of utilizing the gifts that we have been given by our Master. The servants in the story were expected to be found faithful upon their Master's return. And the servants of Christ, we too are expected to be found faithful upon our master's return. Unfortunately, many of us today are trying to get by with a do-nothing Christianity. We think to ourselves, I've been baptized, or I came down to the altar and I said a special prayer. I've checked all the boxes, so now I just need to wait. Once Christ returns, I'll be set. That's what theologians call sola morte, or justification by death. 
I read a quote by D.A. Carson recently where he said, it's not enough for Jesus' followers to just hang in there and wait for the end. They must see themselves as servants who improve what their master entrusts to them. Failure to do so proves they cannot really be valued as his disciples at all. You see, the first two servants were found faithful because they truly belonged to the master. They had a heart and a desire to please their master and to honor him. The third servant was anything but faithful. He didn't love his master. In fact, he hated him. I believe the reason he buried his talent in the ground was because the reality is he didn't, he didn't care. He doesn't care about his master or his responsibilities. The only thing he cared about was himself. True Christians live for Christ. Those who aren't really saved, who aren't truly his, they only live for themselves. Our works do not save us. The servants in Jesus' parable were not justified because of what they had done, but because of the heart behind what they had done. This is the main point I want you to see from God's word this morning. As Christians, awaiting the return of Christ, we've been entrusted with the responsibility of faithfully utilizing the gifts that we have been given until he comes back. You see, this parable isn't about money. The talents mentioned in this story are irrelevant. These talents represent more than money. They actually more closely represent what we would consider a talent today. The talents in this parable symbolize giftings, opportunities, responsibilities, and so much more. J.C. Ryle said, anything whereby we may glorify God is a talent. Our, our gifts, our influence, he says, our money, our knowledge, our health, our strength, our time, our senses, our reason, our intellect, our memory, our affections, our privileges as members of Christ's church, and our advantages as possessors of the Bible, all, all our talents, he says. So the question before us again this morning is, am I faithfully serving Christ with all that he has blessed me with? Colossians 3 outlines what the Christian life should look like. Look with me at Colossians chapter 3. We're going to close with this here this morning. If you're using a Red Pew Bible, we're going to be on page 1044. The life of a believer should look different than that of the unbeliever. The first two servants in our parable acted differently than the third servant did. And in Colossians 3, Paul outlines what the life of a Christian should look like. Let's read Colossians 3 together, starting in the first verse. Paul says, So, if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things, for you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death what belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, God's wrath is coming upon the disobedient. And you once walked in these things when you were living in them. 
But now, put away all the following, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and filthy language from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old self with its practices, and put on the new self. You are being renewed in knowledge according to the image of your Creator. In Christ there is no Greek and Jew, circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. Paul goes on to say, Therefore, as Christ's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a grievance against another. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also are to forgive. Above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity, and let the peace of Christ, to which you were also called in one body, rule your hearts, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you, in all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another, through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Verse 17 says, And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Are you giving thanks to God this morning? Are you giving thanks to God in all that you do? Do your actions glorify God? The Bible says that God has determined the times and the places where we live. Are you glorifying God in your workplace? Are you honoring him in your schools? Does your life reflect what we just read from Colossians 3? After all, God's word tells us that we are Christ's workmanship. We have been created in Christ Jesus for good works, not to be saved by good works. Ephesians 2.8 says that we are saved by grace, through faith. It's not from ourselves. It's God's gift, not from works, so that nobody can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. As Christians, awaiting the return of Christ, we have been entrusted with the responsibility of faithfully utilizing the gifts we've been given until his glorious return. We are not justified by death, sola morte, but we are justified by faith, sola fide, in Christ alone, sola Christus, not by our works, but by his redeeming grace, sola gracia. No one can earn their salvation. No one can. If we try to be justified by our works, we cannot truly be saved. However, if we claim to be saved and do not have works, then we're hypocrites. James 2.17 says, In the same way, faith, if it does not have works, is dead by itself. Our works do not save us, but our works do reflect the redemptive work that Christ is performing within us to transform us and to mold us into followers of Christ. As Christians, it is important that our lives our actions demonstrate the one who saved us. All of this, all that we do, should be done for the glory of God alone. Sola Deo Gloria. Church, 
Don't squander your gifts from God. Don't neglect the talents that he has blessed you with. Be faithful with what he has given you. Honor him in all that you do. Let us do all that we can to serve the Lord with a joyful heart, not in an effort to earn our own righteousness, but rather out of the overflow of our love for God, so that when Christ returns, we might be found faithful and hear our king say, well done, good and faithful servant. Come. Come share in your master's joy. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I pray that we would learn from what we read in your word today. Help us learn from this parable the importance of honoring you, of serving you faithfully, not out of a sense of obligation or duty, but out of our overwhelming sense of joy and love for you. Lord, I pray that we would be found worthy, that we would be found faithful upon your return, that we would hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Come share in your master's joy. As Christians, as brothers and sisters, Lord, I pray that we would be an example to others of what it means to be a servant to Christ. Help us to be faithful with what you've entrusted us with until your glorious return. Lord, I pray that everything we do this year and for the rest of our lives would be found honoring and pleasing to you. May we worship you not just on Sunday mornings, but through our actions, through our words, through our deeds, through all that we do, Lord. May we give you all the glory, all of the honor, and all of the praise, because it is you and you alone who is worthy. It's in your name we pray. Amen. We'd love to have you as our guest. For more information, visit redeeminglifeutah.org.